welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the Hugh James Talks About Abuse podcast. Today, I am joined by my colleague, Felina. Hi, Felina. Hi, Danielle. Hi, listeners. So today, we are talking about consent to medical treatment, and specifically the Netflix drama, or should we say documentary, as it was based on True Life, on Our Father. So before we get into that, I just want to give the listeners a trigger warning. We are going to be talking about medical treatment, consent to that, sexual assault. So if this is something that is going to trigger you, please don't listen to this and join us for another topic. So over to you, Felina. Yes, thank you, Danielle. So as you've touched upon, we are going to be talking about general medical consent and some different aspects to that and where really medical treatment can go wrong in a sense. And then in relation to our father, we're looking at that in that medical context and considering some implications. So whether there are claims to be brought. So the idea is that those listening, you know, something may pop out to you and you think, well, actually that wasn't right. And I should be bringing a claim and I should be talking to a solicitor. So actually, you did quite an intensive talk about consent in medical procedures at the abuse conference on the 7th of April. So that should be available to our listeners if they want to take a good, deep, in-depth look at what you were talking about, because I think your talk was quite long and went into a lot of detail about it. But would you like to give us a, a brief overview? Yeah, so obviously... To say enough so that everyone understands, but not to turn this into a legal lecture. But what we often see in a medical context is situations where consent just hasn't been sought or situations where the treatment has gone further than what the patient has actually consented to. And so in both of those situations, there can be civil which is obviously what we do, Danielle, and also criminal liability. So taking your case to the police. So in really brief terms, what we're often looking at when there's been medical treatment is the scope. So what scope has been identified, what the patient has um, perhaps signed a consent form for. The consent given will then only relate to that scope, to those parameters. And the scope will need to be clinically indicated. And that's important. So in other words, it has to be relevant to the issue before the medical practitioner that they need to treat the patient for. So if someone's come in with a broken back, it obviously wouldn't be appropriate for them to be conducting certain examinations. It has to be voluntary. So consent has to be given freely. That's quite self-explanatory. has to be informed. So the medical practitioner has to explain benefits, other treatments, risks, things such as that. And then capacity. So the patient must be able to understand 
the nature of the treatment that they're advised to undergo. And again, that's quite self-explanatory as well. Yeah. And and there are some exceptions, aren't there, where consent is not required or refusal of consent may be overridden. You know, for an example, if it's an emergency where medical treatment is necessary and that person may be unconscious or mentally impaired, and the, the treatment is in their best interest, it's usually to, to save a life though. Yeah, that's right. And this is something that I didn't go into at the abuse conference. And it's something that obviously we're not going to go into now. But for those who may be interested, they could look into the Mental Health Act, things such as that, and, and other cases, as you've just touched upon, Danielle. What we're focusing on today is individuals without those particular concerns, but those who've been put into for want of a better term, a shocking situation by their trusted medical professional. Yes. And on that point, I think it's a good idea to introduce the plot for our father. For any of our listeners that that haven't watched it yet, it was a documentary that came out in the last month or so on Netflix. And it's based on the fact that in the 1970s and 1980s, there was a fertility specialist in Indiana named Dr. Donald Klein. I think that's how we pronounce his name. He inseminated dozens of patients with his own sperm without their knowledge or consent. So a number of couples were going to him for fertility checks. They thought that they were using their partner's sperm to have children and that a lot of these families that were actually affected, you know, for years thought that they were the the biological father of the said child. So, yes, the story of some of these women, it was 94 at least biological children of Klein featured in the documentary. And I mean, obviously, we don't know whether there were potentially a lot more. But yeah, it premiered in May, as you say. So the parents of these children faced serious frustrations and lack of legal resource simply because no justice legally in relation to Dr. Klein's action took place. The prosecution decided that they are not able to bring a criminal case of rape because the actions taken by Dr. Klein did not fit the legal definition. Yeah, so what was really the most shocking aspect for me, and I think people working in law would maybe feel this way, well, and and those that aren't, but there wasn't any legal recourse there, as you've just said, rape was found not to be possible to be pursued, even though the parents, obviously the women who were inseminated, felt that that's what had happened. And so in, in the documentary, I won't won't ruin it for everyone, but there aren't criminal charges brought in relation to that. And and you you just look at it and you just think, how? You know, it just it seems sexual and it seems like a criminal sexual act. Yeah. And I think the one thing that I also wasn't aware of was that actually if there is sperm donation, it's normally limited to a short number of people because there's obviously a risk then that you could have children that are related in in a small area, which effectively happened in this situation. So, Felina, if a doctor went beyond the scope of what was clinically indicated in the UK, what could be the consequences? Yeah, so I think in the majority of situations, what this tends to come down to is that it's a battery, a trespass. So this is a criminal offence and it can form the basis of a civil claim for compensation and or there would be an investigation by the relevant medical body. So this would be the trust 
you know, that runs the hospital or, or practice and the general medical council. So usually there would be a complaint, there'd be an investigation and the medical practitioner could be found to lack fitness to practice. So this would result in them being suspended or unable to practice ever again. A battery is committed when the person intentionally or recklessly inflicts unlawful force and then it's unlawful obviously because there hasn't been that consent that we touched upon earlier and consent must be given for the majority of procedures so it's fairly easy to satisfy a battery and then a trespass is when an assault or battery is committed the defendant so the medical practitioner in this context must be shown to be indifferent to a known risk. So, for example, Mm -hmm. they knew that there was a risk to the patient not consenting, but they were indifferent to it because the risk perceived to them is low. But that doesn't take away from the fact that consent isn't sought at all. Yes. And turning back to our father, as, as you've just discussed, sort of the sanctions and potential investigations that were taking place at the time that the children and the parents had discovered much of Dr. Klein's actions, he'd reached retirement. So I'm sure if he was still practicing it, it's likely that there would have been different actions would have been taken. And we are talking about something that did happen in the 70s and 80s, sadly. Yeah, I think I was waiting in the documentary really for some kind of conclusion as to his medical license or whatever the terminology is for him being a qualified medical practitioner who can come back to practice that didn't happen and as you said I think that's obviously because he was well into his retirement and it was probably seen as a bit of a a waste of time but it would have been good I think to show that he's not untouchable and that there were more punishments that he faced yeah and just talking about this at the moment we both in the team we have some cases at the moment that are dealing with consent not to the level of Dr Klein I I will reassure you that we, we don't actually know that at the moment there's a doctor doing such things but I act for two women at the moment with different cases against different NHS trusts both on consent issues my first client was medically examined an internal examination to which she did not consent to when we talk about cases we obviously can't give too much information to our listeners just in case our clients are identifiable or the trusts are identifiable but yes one client went in for an investigation and would not have expected an internal examination and that took place so we have a case against the trust for that and a, a second client actually went in because she slipped on a stair and again as you mentioned before hurt her back so the examination she was then subjected to which was quite an invasive internal examination again was was just not justified and with that investigation that took place with the GMC and that doctor actually has been suspended for nine months but by the end of this year sadly will be back acting again I'm sure with restrictions but From that basis, I would always advise listeners or professionals, if there's something that doesn't quite feel right, that you should always report this to the trust, to the GMC, as you've outlined with potential civil and criminal sanctions and investigations. Yeah, and for those listening, these cases were something that I did talk about at the abuse conference in a little more detail. But obviously, your explanation, Danielle, is, I think, sufficient and What it comes down to is there were vaginal examinations. They weren't clinically indicated. They were unnecessary, in other words. 
And it, it's quite right that they led to the suspension that they did. Yes, and, and sadly, in the case that resulted in the suspension, and this has been reported in the press, that this doctor was a locum, so so had moved from trusts. So there were, were two cases specifically for, for that one doctor at different trusts, which is, you know, really upsetting that the potentially there, there could be more from that particular doctor. In these civil claims, it's our case that the doctors committed assault and or battery against the patients. And this did amount to a trespass to, to both of them, as we discussed earlier. There is no requirement for a trespass that damage has been caused, although in these cases there has been psychological damage. It's also not a barrier to a claim that the patient being asked, they would have consented. It's primarily the fact that they weren't asked. Yeah, so for those listening who may be thinking, well, I remember having that examination that, you know, I don't remember consenting to or didn't really seem relevant to me at the time, you don't have to have physically been harmed. You know, it's, it's not a barrier that, oh, well, if they'd have explained it better, I would have said yes. That's not the point. These people are in very trusted positions and they need to abide by the rules that they have, as we've outlined already. And sadly, it is the case that it's more likely when you're subject to an intimate examination that these issues of consent might occur. So I think anyone listening who has previously or is in the future going to be have gynecological, abdominal, urinary, pelvic, rectal, prostate examinations that, you know, you should think about your rights because you need to be treated in a certain way, you know, with respect and, and given the opportunity to give the consent or withhold it to make sure you don't suffer any indignity or discomfort or, or pain even. Yes, I completely agree with all of the things you've said there, you know, and just generally, if you go for any form of medical examination, if you're uncomfortable with the explanation or if you are asked to remove items of clothing and you're not sure of the relevance, I think there's times where because we're dealing with medical professions or in any profession we see it, you, you don't question authority. I would always advise, question, take your time. If you don't understand what you're consenting to or what's been explained to you, ask again. You know, a professional should be there to take the time to make you feel comfortable and make sure you know exactly what's going to happen before it does. Yeah. And, and, you know, that takes us full circle, really, to the first things that we were saying, you know, consent, as I said, the four things, which was scope, voluntary, informed and capacity. And it's not voluntary and it's not informed, you know, in the way that you've just outlined that, Danielle. And I think that's sort of the concluding thoughts for people to bear in mind. Yeah. And I would say both of my clients, an element of why they were perhaps reluctant to initially speak to the hospital or to the GMC was because there was a little bit of embarrassment on their side, whether what they were feeling, whether that was justified. And, you know, once they've got down the road of speaking with the trust and going through a GMC process and speaking with us, they've realised it hasn't. But I'm sure there are many, many people out there that have had a similar experience and just thought, no, you know, it must be fine because it was an expert. Mm. I think that's a good point as well. And sort of linking back to our father, I don't want anyone listening who's in a situation where they have a potential claim. I don't want anyone thinking that, well, they've all gone down this long process and it hasn't actually reached any criminal or civil you know, liabilities that's helped those people. Well, Danielle, you know, your clients are an example. There are options and we are here obviously to hear 
you know your specific situation and hopefully there are options for you as well and and in most cases there are the situation obviously with our father and Dr Klein is is very unique and we just recommend that everyone gets in touch to to get actual legal advice yeah i would suggest anyone listening that perhaps don't delay but contact one of us we can always just have a chat with you consider your options and go from there but it's always worth an inquiry if you do have concerns yeah thank you danielle um yeah really interesting topic and we obviously look forward to hopefully hearing from some of you listening you can always get in touch with us you can contact us on twitter on these posts as we share these podcasts or to our email addresses which are always available online as well. Thank you, Felina. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.